2: The Study Smarter Series is made possible in part by Osmosis. Osmosis is a personalized learning platform that manages med school for you. It's been called the Netflix of medical education and is the only system that analyzes your coursework and intelligently recommends personalized quizzes, mnemonics, flashcards, videos, and reference articles. You can get Osmosis for two months as part of the Inside the Board Study Smarter Bundle for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1, along with two months of Physio, the online high-yield physiology learning platform, and a spot in Conrad Fisher's live online Cramathon on May 7th. There's only one week left. The sale closes April 16th. And to help you make the decision, we're also throwing in beta access to our all-audio QBank, which we'll be releasing beginning in May. Plus, you get two weeks of MedQuest's Pharmacology QBank to enhance your pharmacology preparation for the boards. Go to insidetheboards.com and use the discount code PODCAST to get $20 off.
1: Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer, so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman.
2: All right, so we are back for the Inside the Boards Study Smarter Series, Step 1 Uh, with Dr. Ken Rosenthal, who is a professor in the Department of Biomedical Sciences at Roseman University of the Health Science, where he's helping start up a medical school. He is the co-author with Michael Tan of Rapid Review Microbiology and Immunology and Medical Microbiology, the larger textbook with Patrick Murray and Michael Thaler, and a set of flashcards based on the aforementioned book book as well, aptly named Medical Micro Flashcards. I asked him if he would help us out uh, discussing microbiology and immunology, and he said, with the immunology thing, I can explain it all in about 20 minutes. So today, we are going to go through the 20-minute immune response with Dr. Rosenthal, and you can go to the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series page, just insidetheboards.com slash podcast, and we will put up A video of this presentation to help you follow along. So, thanks again for being on the program, sir. I appreciate it.
0: It's my pleasure. The best way to learn the immune response is to write a chapter on the subject. Yeah. But if you don't have to do that, then the key to learning anything in micro or immuno is to make it real. And so, for this 20 minute immune response, let's think in terms of how the immune response would look at an infection. So ask yourself, what are the components of the immune response that are going to be relevant? The cells, the cytokines, etc. How are they identified? CD numbers or receptors. What triggers them? Cytokines, pathogen-associated molecular patterns. What do they do? Do they make cytokines? Do they turn this on? Do they make antibodies? How is it controlled? What cytokines turn them on, turn them off? And what happens if there's too little too late, or too much of any of these responses. And that's where we get our immune diseases. So the normal situation, and this would be for, for the first exposure, like for a baby, is that there's staph aureus on the skin. It's normal flora. And the structure of the sin, skin is that there are dead cells, the cornified layer on the outside, then the epidermis and the dermis. Now, if there's a splinter that goes and breaks that skin, then the staph gets to go inside, past the barriers, and into the body, and then comes into contact with the cells in the epidermis and the dermis. In the epidermis, you have keratinocytes, which are a specialized type of epithelial cell.
2: And then it gets a lot more complicated.
0: (laughs) Now, well, this is not complicated. The Staph aureus is a gram-positive bacteria that brings with it all kinds of structures that are recognized by the innate immune response, and we call them pathogen-associated molecular patterns, which are recognized by receptors called toll-like receptors. And as you see, there are different structures that are recognized by these toll-like receptors. And here are some of them. In this, for our staph aureus, we're looking at primarily lipotychoic acid and peptidoglycan. And this will trigger the pr- production of antimicrobial peptides and IL-1 and some chemokines. It will also uh, trigger response from Langerhans cells, which are in epithelial layer, and these are uh, dendritic cells, and they will make the acute phase cytokines, TNFA, IL-1, and IL-6. These cytokines will then trigger the mast cell to release histamine, which will open up the vasculature, the capillaries, and fluid containing complement, etc., cetera, will be, leak out into the site. And then activation of complement cascade. Now, I know this is what everybody says, oh my gosh, complement. but it's not as bad as it seems. The key is the three classic pathways all are meant to promote the cleavage of C3. Once C3 has been cleaved, then it produces the A activating fragments and then the B binding fragments and then C3D as well. So C3A, C4A, and C5A recruit inflammatory cells, and that's essential for a bacterial infection.
2: Can I interrupt here and just let me ask, I would say for a lot of people, myself included, who've been out of the first and second year of medical school for a while, when you mentioned complement, really the main thing I remember is that those who have a C5 through C9 deficiency are more prone to Neisseria infections. Will we get to that, or can you comment on that?
0: Okay, so uh, let me go through the cascade briefly, and then I'll talk about deficiencies. All right. So the C3A, C4A, and C5 are essential for recruiting neutrophils and macrophage. So if you are deficient in any mechanism that cleaves to C3, you're susceptible to staph and strep infections, which depend upon complement C3A, C5A, to recruit neutrophils. C3B is essential for binding and creating the complex that cleaves C3, and C3D is for activation of the B cell. So all three pathways lead to cleavage of C3. Now, if C5 through 9 build a pore on the bacterial surface, that pore, which will kill the bacteria, really works only well if the pore can build itself on the bacterial surface. It doesn't work in gram positives. It doesn't work in gram positives because the peptidoglycan is too thick for all the parts to get to the plasma membrane. And it works really, really, really well in Neisseria because instead of lipopolysaccharide, the Neisseria have lipooligosaccharide. And it's like having a field of corn, which are eight feet tall, versus a field of stubble. Mm-hmm. And so the complement pieces can latch on to the outer membrane surface so much better in uh, Neisseria than other bacteria, and including other uh, gram negatives. Keep in mind that the alternative pathway is always, always cleaving C3- to initiate complement cleavage, and so we'll get to that in a moment. So the classical and the lectin pathways are similar and um, lead to, again, the cleavage of C3. The C3B is very important because it's an obstinate. It promotes the clearance of microbes by macrophage and the uptake of macrophages by neutrophils C3A, C5A is a recruitment of neutrophils and macrophages. And this is essential for, again, staph and strep infections. And as I said, C3 is always being cleaved and has a capacity of initiating that cascade of events, except that we have many ways of regulating and inhibiting complement. Inhibitors and regulators of complement work at the c one Level to stop things from progressing, the C9 level to prevent the pore from forming, but everything else is working at the C3 cleavage level.
2: So it's probably too simple to say, but like if you only had to remember the really important elements of complement for the boards, probably the functions and where it can go wrong for C1, C3 and C9 essentially are probably very high-yield concepts to keep in mind. Would that be correct?
0: That would be correct. And if you're looking over this table at your leisure, you'll see that the red indicates the target, and on the left-hand side uh, also the specific target for complement that is cleaved. They're also uh, grouped together in that the, you'll, you see which ones are soluble, c, uh, C1 inhibitors, c C-H, C4 binding protein, and then the rest of them are on the membrane, CR complement receptor 1, the membrane cofactor protein, MCP, decay accelerating factor, the type 1 complement receptor, and anaphylatoxin inhibitor are all membrane bound, as is CD59. So when these don't work properly, complement gets activated inappropriately, and we can have disruption of cells, but also autoimmune diseases.
2: Like C1-INH inhibitor deficiencies or those with hereditary deficiencies in C1 through C4, the latter of which would uh, lead to like a tendency towards infections from, say, staph, Correct.
0: If we're looking at deficiencies of the complement components, C1 deficiency in C1 through 4, staph and strep infections, deficiencies in C5 through 9 is Neisseria infections, and deficiencies in C3 is most bacterial infections.
2: And then the inhibitors, like you made that point about autoimmune disease, like the famous complement inhibitor deficiency, the C1-INH deficiency, leads to hereditary angioedema. Yes. And that is most simplistically, I suppose, looked at as um, an overactivity of the beginning portion of the complement pathway or cascade or unregulation.
0: That, That would be accurate, yes.
2: So our skin is cut, Staph aureus gets in, activates the Langerhans cells in the epidermis, which makes all these PAMPs, Right. Right. Complement gets activated, and then that is where we're at, I believe.
0: So once complement is activated, the C3A, C5A recruits neutrophils, macrophages, and there are some T-cells in the skin, resident gamma-delta T-cells, so they can make some interferon gamma to activate the macrophage. But the key is that only an M1 macrophage can kill the bacteria that it gobbles up. So neutrophils are always attacking, always on, but macrophages have to be switched from an M2 to an M1 in order to kill the bacteria that they've phagocytized. That activation occurs with interferon gamma. Interferon gamma turns an M2 macrophage, which is status quo, to an M1 macrophage, which can then ramp up the killing mechanisms in the
2: macrophage. Which is an oxygen-dependent mechanism,
0: correct? And that's on the next slide.
2: Oh, it is? Okay, good.
0: (laughs) So when we look at the innate protections, we start off the macrophages and the neutrophils require that uh, the bacteria be decorated with either C3B, IgG, or lectins to facilitate the uptake by opsonization. Then they phagocytize the bacteria and then neutrophils and M1 macrophages kill by dumping presynthesized granule contents, which include uh, different antimicrobial peptides and enzymes and proteases. But for M1 macrophages and neutrophils, the reactive oxygen species such as peroxides and for macrophage, hypochlorite, which is essentially bleach. Now, in addition to those phagocytic cells, dendritic cells and macrophages can process the proteins of the bacteria for antigen presentation to T cells. And so the Langerhans cells, when they get activated, not only do they release acute phase cytokines to induce a warning at the local level, but they mature and they go to the lymph node and present peptides to T cells to turn on the appropriate T cell response to help deal with the infection. Langerhans cells are dendritic cells and they are the best antigen uh, presenting cells. And then the Th1 and the Th17 responses promote a pro-inflammatory response which reinforces the protections. Th17 for neutrophils, Th1 for macrophages. In an adult where we would have antibody, antibody would, would seep in with the complement when the uh, vasculature is opened, and the antibody would bind to the bacteria as well as to toxins of the bacteria. The T cells would move into this area to facilitate the responses interacting with the macrophages that are there to promote the Th1 type of response. Now getting into some detail the dendritic cells they direct dendritic cells direct dd a response from t cells they present exogenous antigen through mhc class 2 to cd4 t cells mhc 2 cd4 endogenous antigen and cross presented antigen endogenous antigen would be viruses viral infected infection or self antigen cross presented antigen would be phagocytosed proteins and these antigens are processed and presented on MHC class one to CDA T-cells. The T-cells then are activated with this signal to the T-cell receptor, then to co-receptors have to interact, and then cytokines tell the, direct the T-cell as to what response to turn on. The T-cells then tell, TT, other cells what to do with cytokines. And so here is a list of the triggers in the cytokines that the dendritic cell will make to turn on specific responses, and then the products, the cytokine products of those key responses. And look this over on your own because this turns out to be important. The key here is Th17 produces IL-17 and IL-22. Th1 produces interferon gamma, and also IL-2 and TNF-beta. Th2 makes IL-4, 5, and 10, to promote antibody production, and the Tregs make IL-10 and TGF-beta, which are regulatory cytokines. The B cells, the key thing about B cells to remember is they make immunoglobulins, but they're also antigen presenters. And when you're talking about antibody, the key is it has two regions, the variable region, which is included in the FAB and FAB prime two section, and the FC region, which has the business end that interacts with the host. So the variable region interacts with antigen and the heavy chain FC region interacts with Ig receptors and complement. These molecules are expressed both on the cell surface and are uh, released as soluble. And the way the system works is each B cell has cell surface immunoglobulin. And when antigen binds to the cell surface immunoglobulin, that B cell factory gets its trigger to grow. And therefore, we get more immunoglobulin in the system. So only the best B cells get this signal to survive and grow. The system starts out with IgM and IgD. And then about seven days after, with T cell help, there's a class switch. Th1 responses promote IgG production. Th2 responses, IgG, IgE, and IgA. The key is the variable region is already set by genetic recombination. So the only thing that has to be done for class switch is to trade the FC portion. So trading IgM and IgD for IgG or E or A. So the genetic recombination just trades those. After that class switch occurs, then the immunoglobulin gene can be improved by somatic mutation. And this occurs in the germinal centers. And the B cells wander through the germinal center, going through somatic mutation, and then interacting with the T cells. And again, only the best B cells that bind antigen antigen the best will get a growth survival signal and then become plasmocytes to produce plasma cells and lots of antibody or memory cells, ultimately giving us an improved response. So this is the innate responses. So the key here is for bacteria, it's complement. For fungi, it's complement. And for viruses, it's interferon alpha and beta.
2: And let me ask, just the commonality for bacteria and fungus, is that a mostly a cell wall-related uh, issue then?
0: That is true. The key is for bacteria and fungi, complement is acting to produce the C3A, C5A fragments to recruit neutrophils, and also to produce C3B as an opsonin,
2: Which is not how our body deals with intracellular bacteria right. viruses, just simply so. That's
0: right. So the key is complement is promoting the uptake in phagocytosis in order for killing the extracellular bacteria and the fungi. Okay, so very quickly, finishing off the immune response, For autoimmunity to happen, the first requirement is that there must be a genetic capacity for the MHC molecules to actually bind the self-antigen involved in autoimmunity. So that's why there's specific MHC1 and MHC2 types associated with autoimmune disease. But even if you have that genetic predisposition, the tolerance system in the body still has to be broken in order for T cells to be activated to be able to respond to that self-antigen. And this often happens by a cytokine storm that could occur, let's say, from a flu infection. And then finally, we get CD4 T cell responses that promote antibody production. The self-antibody then could elicit a hypersensitivity type two response, which is antibody binding to the cell surface and then complement binds to that, promoting lysis and also inflammation by recruiting neutrophils. A hypersensitivity type three reaction, which interacts with soluble molecules like protein, like in an arthritis reaction, and this uh, is an immune immune complex disease, which uh, then again can activate complement, promoting inflammation or a hypersensitivity type four disease which are T-cells, CD4 and CD8 T-cells, which produce interferon gamma to reinforce macrophage and dendritic cell cytokine production to induce inflammation in that regard. So on your own time, you can look at the key cell surface molecules that distinguish the different immune responses. Uh, These are the key ones that you should be familiar with. And just, just for fun, The CD20 molecule, which is on B cells, is the target for rituximab, and that's one that may come up, and then some others in here as well that you should look over on your own time. Similarly, these are the key cytokines that you should be familiar with. The acute phase cytokines IL-1, TNF-alpha, and IL-6, the IL-12 and IL-23 that produce Th1 and Th17 responses. IL-23 is very important because it is involved in autoimmune diseases like uh, rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis. And so these IL-12 and IL-23 are targeted by a lot of antibody therapies. IL-2 is a growth lymphocyte growth factor. Interferons alpha and beta, which are part of the antiviral response, but also do a lot now we know about immunomodulation. Interferon beta is a part of beta seron used in treatment for MS. Interferon gamma is macrophage activation factor, is the key cytokine in Th1 responses. TNF beta, also known as lymphotoxin, is part of Th1 responses. Then IL-4, 5, and 10 are involved in Th2 responses. IL-4 and 5 for antibody production, 10 for B cell growth, and is a regulator of T cell responses. IL-17 for neutrophil activation, which promotes inflammation, also a target for for treatments of rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis, and then TGF-beta, which is a regulatory cytokine. So look these over on your own time. That's the immune response in maybe 20 minutes, maybe a little bit longer.
2: But that's that's pretty good because it's in your rapid review book. It takes up four chapters, a good 50 pages to go through. But I think Do you have time then to kind of apply some of these or help us learn to think about these in terms of practical applications? Absolutely. So I've got a few questions here. The first one is, there's a 16-month-old girl who comes to the office because of severe abdominal pain for the past two days. Her mother says that she's been febrile and vomiting. Medical history includes five cases of omphalitis, which is infection of the umbilical cord stump, and two cases of pneumonia examination shows a very tender abdomen with rebound tenderness. Her CBC shows a white blood cell count of 80,000, lymphocytes at 23%, neutrophils 67, monocytes at 4%, eosinophils at 4%, or hemoglobins at 11, and platelets are at 375,000. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And the answers are A, Chedak-Higashi syndrome, B, common variable immunodeficiency, C, leukocyte adhesion deficiency, D, selective IgA deficiency, or X-linked A-gamma globulinemia, which is just fun to say. So the answer for this one is C, leukocyte adhesion deficiency. And I actually knew this one going back and reviewing some of these questions, but my answer was entirely based on the fact of recurrent umbilical cord stump infections, and that's just the classic LAD picture. Any comments on any of those answers or, or why or how we should think about a leukocyte adhesion deficiency and what it causes in the body?
0: Okay, the key thing here is to start off and realize that this is a 16-month-old girl, which means that, and she's had lots of infections, and they're primarily bacterial infections So the key is to think in terms of innate responses early on. This is a genetic deficiency. And then to look at the types of cells that are around, and it's not all the right cells are there and in reasonable quantities. So if this is a problem with bacterial infections, as indicated by pneumonia and also by the omphalitis and lots of fevers think in terms of complement or neutrophil function. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the different possibilities, then the key is that Chediak-Higashi syndrome, it could be that, but we don't see the other aspects.
2: Like the albinism or
0: peripheral neuropathy. Neuropathy. Then the common variable immunodeficiency should be sicker than this. There'd be more problems. Selective IgA deficiency, it's not just respiratory infections uh, or GI infections. It's, it's more than that. The umphalitis, uh, skin infection, would talk against an IgA deficiency. And again, X-linked A-gamma globulinemia would be a, a much more serious problem. So it really comes down to neutrophils are not working, and therefore the leukocyte adhesion deficiency.
2: Just kind of a process of elimination if you don't know that classic fact about omphalitis, which is often included in board practice questions and, and whatnot. Any other pearls of wisdom there? The key there, again, is
0: look at the age of, of of the individual first. If it's very young, then therefore it's probably a congenital deficiency. The next is look at the types of infections. Is it and how sick she is, that helps a lot too. Does it look like bacterial infections? Then look at the types of cells that are present, and that will help you to uh, figure out what type of immune response is missing. And this one's a little tricky because all the cells are there, so there must be a dysfunction in the cells.
2: Yeah. All right. So I've got uh, some more to illustrate this. A 10-year-old boy comes to the outpatient clinic because of persistent sinus infections. For the past five years, the patient has had multiple sinus and upper respiratory infections, and he's also had recurrent diarrhea throughout his childhood. His temperature is 37 degrees Celsius, which is normal. Heart rate is 90 per minute respirations, 16 per minute, and blood pressure is 125 over 75. Lab testing shows an abnormally low level of one isotype, but normal levels of the other factors. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Selective IgA deficiency. B. Common variable immunodeficiency. Drug-induced IgA deficiency. D. Chediak-Higashi syndrome. Or E. Transient hypogamma globulinemia of infancy which is thankfully abbreviated THI. So with this one, um, we can probably get to the answer because you mentioned before recurrent respiratory infections and GI infections should at least lead you towards recognizing there might be a selective IgA deficiency or an IgA deficiency in some sense, which is the correct answer here. Why do those with an IgA deficiency present later in life? And why do they have mostly sinus or or respiratory tract and GI tract infections?
0: So again, this is a 10-year-old boy, which means that he's been, he's had bothersome but not significant infections throughout his life. And the key is that these are infections that are protected by IgA secretions the epithelial surface of the respiratory tract and of the GI tract. These are both protected by IgA. This is not a life-threatening infection. And also, it says that only one type of antibody is deficient. And so, it's not IgG, E, M, or D.
2: Which would rule out easily common variable immunodeficiency, at least for this one. And then... uh... I suppose Chediak-Higashi syndrome is, the, uh, I guess that doesn't help rule that out. No, and this is
0: not transient. This, is, this He's 10 years old.
2: Correct. So <laughs>
0: he's, he would have grown out of a transient situation. Also, the IgA deficiency is the most common of the immunoglobulin immunodeficiencies. So it's not unusual to, to see this situation compared to the other immunoglobulin deficiencies.
2: All right, next is a 17-year-old male who comes to the hospital because of a large inflamed region on his left calf. He noticed this two days ago after hiking in West Virginia. On physical examination, the area is characterized with redness, is pruritic, and contains a rash. Laboratory studies show an increase in mononuclear leukocytes. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, type 1, anaphylactic hypersensitivity. B, type 2 antibody dependent hypersensitivity type 3 an immune complex mediated hypersensitivity d a type 4 delayed type hypersensitivity or e a type 5 stimulatory hypersensitivity and the answer here is it d type 4 delayed type hypersensitivity reactions. Walk us through each of these answer choices. I was pretty easily able to rule out type 1 anaphylaxis, but we would expect that to present more acutely with, with the cause of it being an immediate reaction that involves IgE-mediated release of histamine from mast cells, um, which leads to the sort of like respiratory distress and cardiovascular instability we see with a type 1 anaphylactic hypersensitivity reaction. But remind me, with type 2 antibody-dependent hypersensitivities, how do these work and, and present? Alluded to it, I suppose, in the first part of the talk.
0: Well, we can go through each of the hypersensitivity reactions. Type 1 is immediate hypersensitivity because of uh, inducing contents, histamine, etc., for type 2, so anaphylactic hypersensitivity occurs immediately, so that's very, very quick. The time scale on these is very important. For type 2 and type 3, these are mediated by complement. And for type 2, antibody binds to cell surfaces, and then complement binds to the cell surface antibody and triggers uh, inflammatory reactions and cell lysis.
2: So this would be somebody who takes like uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and suffers some sort of uh, uh, leukopenia because of it. Is that correct?
0: Well, I like the penicillin example because penicillin can react with— Plus it's classic. (laughs) Right, yeah. Penicillin can react with uh, cell surfaces, and then that is the antigen that's recognized by the antibody and then elicits this response. But strangely, penicillin can bind to proteins and elicit a type 3 immune complex mediated response as well. That's right. One student brought this to my attention and was able to save the entire class's um, a point on the exam at one time. So this is one of those, you have to be careful uh, with the example. But type 3, the classic situation is an Arthas response. For example, you get a your annual flu shot and then antibody in your bloodstream will interact with the flu proteins, the immune complex then will activate complement. Complement will release uh, C3A, C5A to promote inflammatory responses, and hence you get um, an Arthur's reaction, which is a raised rash at the site of injection. Or this could be a systemic response as you would get with hepatitis B infection. Or if you had antibodies to, let's say, a gamma globulin shot, and that would cause serum sickness. Serum sickness, which is a classic example, occurs if you have received gamma globulin for let's say, let's say a snake bite, mm-hmm. and you got horse antibody more than once. The second time you receive the horse antibody, your body has made antibodies against the horse immunoglobulin and then produces immune immune complexes and that would promote the problem. Finally, we get to the answer to this uh, particular question and Let's go over the question once again. Mm-hmm. So this is a 17-year-old man who has a rash on his left calf. Okay, keep in mind where it is. Yep. It came up two days after hiking in West Virginia. Okay, two days. So that's, they're telling you that the trigger was two days ago from hiking. This should make you think of leaves of three leave it be, which right. <laughs> is poison ivy, and a poison ivy rash, redness, itch and rash with mononuclear leukocytes coming into that site which is the T cells coming in, interacting with macrophage and uh, Langerhans cells, which are presenting the oil and protein, modified proteins due to the poison ivy interacting. And the T cells are turning on the macrophages and the Langerhans cells, which are producing cytokines, which promote the rash of poison ivy. This is a type four delayed type hypersensitivity. It's two days later, The other types of hypersensitivity occur within minutes for type 1, within 6 to 8 hours for type 2 and type 3 hypersensitivity. This is mediated by T cells coming homing to the site of infection to elicit that response. Usually occurs as a rash or as a swelling at the site.
2: And then type 5 stimulatory hypersensitivity, is that a new sort of uh, construct within immunology?
0: Well, type five hypersensitivity is not a common usage, but type five hypersensitivity is oftentimes included in type two, in which antibody is directed at cell surface proteins. But in type 5, as they define it, this type of hypersensitivity elicits an autoimmune response that does not involve complement. But the antibody triggers a response in Graves' disease by mimicking the interaction of thyroid with its receptor. That would be a classic example.
2: Yeah, I was going to say the the example is uh, one in which when I was studying this stuff, I thought that was more of a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time. I thank you so much once more for taking your own time to help us learn immunology. I wish I had had somebody to be able to explain it to me in 20 minutes, almost a decade ago.
0: Uh, In closing, let me again suggest that when you go to review the immune response, create a patient for each of the immunological diseases. Think about what the symptoms will be, what's triggering the response, which cells are involved, which cytokines are involved, and then think about how those immune responses are causing the pathophysiology. And then finally, what can you do about it? Oftentimes, you can figure out from what's going on, what kind of therapy would make sense.
2: Well, thank you for the advice. And again, I really appreciate it. And it's
0: been my pleasure. Thank you very much.
2: Don't forget to share the Study Smarter series on social media. Just share an episode, tag at Boards Insider on Twitter, or Inside the Boards on Facebook or Instagram, and you'll be entered to win the Study Smarter contest, which is going to be a $50 Amazon gift card at the end of the series. And thanks to James from Two O'Clock Courage for letting us use the opening track, which is The Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missolette. You can check 2 O'Clock Courage, the best band you've never heard of, at 2oClockCourage.com or on iTunes or
1: Spotify. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, national board of medical examiners the national council of state boards of nursing national board of osteopathic medical examiners or any other licensing or examination body all exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners content discussed during the program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.